Hello, powerful people. I'm Seth Harris, a senior fellow at the Burns Center for Social Change. Great to have you on the Power at Work blog. Uh, and uh, thanks for watching this fantastic blogcast that we have for you. I think you're really uh, going to enjoy it. Um, I'm, I'm going to introduce you to John O'Malley, who's a legislative coordinator for Communications Workers Local 1180 in New York City. Um, special thanks to my friend Richard Winston for uh, introducing me to John and telling us about John's fantastic story and insight. And um, uh, we're getting a lot of help from a bunch of labor lawyers uh, identifying folks to talk to us on the broadcast. If you have ideas, by the way, send them in to us. Connect with us on Twitter uh, at Power at Work Blog. Connect with us on Instagram at Power at Work Blog. Connect. Follow us on. Uh, LinkedIn, at Power at Work. Uh, just go to the Power at Work page and send us a message and let us know uh, uh, your ideas for broadcasts here. But John O'Malley was suggested to us, uh, and, and I think you're going to see why in this broadcast. Uh, John, in addition to being a legislative coordinator, helps to organize and bargain on behalf of not-for-profit workers, uh, workers at Places like Human Rights Watch and uh, NPR Radio's uh, Radio Lab and uh, uh, National Domestic Workers Alliance and others. Uh, one of the reasons that we wanted you to meet John is that John's story, his personal story, is a one that's fairly common in the labor movement. Somebody who started as a frontline worker um, and was an advocate in the workplace. He actually became a shop steward, but then went on to become a union staff person. The skills that he acquired as a frontline worker, advocate, and activist, and militant, as he describes himself, um, became so valuable that he ended up as a union staff person. Uh, and uh, it was after a, a really unfortunate uh, act of retaliation by his employer after a strike. You're going to hear that story here on the broadcast. I think it's going to be uh, chilling to you, and it's going to have echoes of some of the things that we're seeing in some of the organizing campaigns that are going on uh, right now. Uh, but there are union leaders and union staff like John O'Malley all over the United States, across the labor movement, across unions. Um, and so I think uh, uh, it's one of the things that makes the labor movement democratic. It is a member-led, member-staffed largely, not entirely, but member-staffed movement, certainly a member-led movement. You know, the Steelworkers Union is led by a steelworker. Uh, the Plumbers Union is led by a plumber uh, out of Newark, New Jersey. The Seafarers Union is led by a seafarer who graduated from the union's job training program. It's its entry-level job training program about 50 years ago. Um, it's members in the lead. Uh, and it's part of what keeps the leadership connected to the membership. You know, even though they no longer work on the job site or in the office suite or in the sh on the ship or uh, uh, on the shop floor, they have been those kinds of workers recently, and they understand what those workers' lives are like. Uh, they understand what the working experience is like because they've lived that working experience, and they certainly speak the language of the workplace. And they live in the community more often than not, uh, and they understand their members' lives because they are their lives, uh, or certainly were their lives before they joined the union staff or became union leaders. John is a fantastic example of that. Um, so you're going to enjoy hearing about his experiences, his legislative work in Albany. He and I do a little political analysis of New York State. Um, 
and he'll tell you a little bit about what organizing and representing and bargaining for uh, workers at not-for-profit organizations uh, is like. But before you watch my discussion with John, I want to mention that this has been a week of very important news uh, in the labor movement, very important labor news generally, not just in the labor movement, but labor news more broadly, uh, maybe more news in a week than I've seen in years. Um, now, let me just rattle off some of what happened just in the past week. Um, the West Coast ports negotiations were settled. There's a tentative collective bargaining agreement between the ILWU, the, the International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union, and the Pacific Maritime Association, which is the maritime, the, the employer, uh, the terminal operator employer trade association or, or bargaining association, I should say. And so they have a deal that's going to cover 22,000 workers in ports all up and down the West Coast. Um, it's a hugely important result. Um, and it's also a huge success for collective bargaining. You know, this that contract expired almost a year ago. At the end of this month, it'll be a year. Um, but those, the union and the employer association understood that any work stoppage that they undertook on either side was going to have a seriously deleterious effect on an economy where supply chains are still recovering from the pandemic. And it's serious business. You know, you shut down the West Coast ports and trade with Asia is going to be very seriously affected. You're going to make shipping into the United States much more expensive because you have to go through the Gulf Coast or the East Coast, or it's not going to get shipped in at all. And uh, they understood that. And they took the responsibility to stay at the table, to be resilient, to stick to the process. And they fought it out. They argued it out. They worked it out. They worked with the membership of both sides. And they came to a, at least a tentative deal. It's not ratified yet. We don't know how that's going to come out. But good for them. And collective bargaining can work. And also good for President Biden and the members of his cabinet who very directly communicated uh, to both sides that they needed to get a deal and they need to stick with it uh, and not allow a, a, a work stoppage to occur. Now, speaking of work stoppages, another piece of news this week, the Teamsters who work at UPS, uh, only 340,000 of them. Um, the, the, the Teamsters voted uh, overwhelmingly 97% to authorize a strike when the contract expires on July 31st. Now, that doesn't mean there's going to be a strike, but all those people out there who are saying, oh, this is just a procedural step, it doesn't mean anything. No, that's wrong. Um, what this means is that the membership of the union strongly supports their bargaining committee and the demands they're making at the bargaining table. And so the 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 company needs to understand that the members are very, very, very serious about those bargaining demands. And they want what the union is asking for, and they're ready to stand behind it by taking the immense risk of going out on strike if they have to do that. Now, nobody, nobody should want a strike. Nobody should be cheerleading a strike. Strikes are very serious business. They're disruptive to workers' lives. They're disruptive to the employers. In the case of the UPS strike, it will it'll have some negative effect on the economy and on consumers and others. It's serious business. So it's not a good thing if there's a strike. But these members wanted management to know they're ready to strike if they don't get what they expect, what they want, what, they, what they're willing to agree to at the bargaining table. Now, the good news is that at the same time that the bargaining, uh, that the, the strike authorization vote was happening, 
UPS and the Teamsters reached a tentative agreement to deal with one of the biggest issues for UPS drivers, and that is addressing heat hazards in the trucks and in the warehouses. Um, you know, heat is becoming a bigger and bigger risk to workers' lives as temperatures get more and more extreme with climate change. And good for the parties, the Teamsters and UPS, for coming to a tentative agreement on how to address heat issues for the drivers. Trucks going forward are going to be, over time, they're going to be air-conditioned. Seems like a straightforward solution, a very important solution. There will be interim measures taken uh, in the meantime. Let me just say, this is not the only issue. There are other issues, but this was a very important issue. And the fact that the parties were able to reach an agreement on this issue is a good sign. Again, doesn't mean there's not going to be a strike, but you have to take it as a good sign that the parties are working constructively with one another and moving forward uh, before the July 31st deadline. The Writers Guild strike, sadly, is continuing. Uh, it's in its seventh week. Uh, there's no sign that a deal is coming anytime soon. The the actors, SAG-AFTRA, are getting ready to, or have just begun their negotiations. Um, the hope is that there will be a resolution to the whole uh, set of industry issues, technology and other industri industry issues that have come up. Back in 1988, the Writers Guild had a strike that lasted 22 weeks, so there may be a long way to go with this one. It's hard to know whether this is as intense as, as that one was. Um, but uh, there are risks and opportunities for workers when new technologies become available here. It's uh, artificial intelligence. That's also an issue, along with deep fake and, and uh, CGI and other issues for the actors. Uh, but there are other issues as well, you know, get, making sure that workers have get a fair share of the distribution of profits from a variety of different mechanisms for distributing product in the entertainment industry is a big issue. Uh, so it's issues that are relevant to the entertainment industry, but some of the issues extend beyond the entertainment industry. Artificial intelligence, relevant in a lot of places. Last week, another piece of news. The National Labor Relations Board decided the uh, a case called the Atlanta Opera Company, which had to do with the definition of employee under the National Labor Relations Act, who's covered by the act. I won't talk a lot about it here. I've got a blog post on the Power at Work blog where I talk about that. I've also got a blog post that talks about the UPS uh, Teamsters negotiations. So take a look at both of those to learn more about the stories this week. Another piece of news this week, we got the latest inflation numbers. Inflation is down. That's very good for working people. Um, inflation's 4% over the course of the last year, but only 0.1% over the course of the last month. Very good news. Uh, uh, inflation is somewhat higher uh, if you take out the volatile food and energy prices, but as long as workers' wage increases exceed inflation, workers are doing better. Their, their, their paychecks will buy them more, and that's what's happening. Uh, 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 wages went up 4.3% over the course of the last year. Inflation was up 4%. Workers are ahead. Not a lot. They're not getting rich, but they're doing better. They're definitely doing better. Uh, it's good news. And finally, another huge piece of news in the last week, the AFL-CIO and 17 unions uh, endorsed my former boss, President Biden, for re-election in 2024. Let me just say that's not especially surprising because of the close relationship that President Biden has to organized labor. Um, he generally has a pro-worker, pro-union agenda. Some people are critical of some things that he has done, but he's he is the self-described most pro-union president in American history. Um, 
The only surprise about these endorsements is that they came really, really early. Um, I look back a few uh, uh, few past Democratic presidents, none of them were endorsed this early. Uh, President Clinton was not. President Biden, they were both endorsed in the year of the election, the even-numbered year of their presidential re-election campaigns. Um, even Walter Mondale, who was a had huge support in the AFL-CIO, was endorsed in October of the year before the election year. This is June. And so this is the earliest in my memory of the AFL-CIO uh, endorsing. Individual unions often endorse before, usually, typically endorse well before the Federation does. Now the Federation is among the first to make the endorsement. And that will matter tremendously in the Democratic primary union voters make up a sizable minority of uh, Democratic primary voters, but also they're important in the electorate as a whole. Um, and unions like uh, the building trades unions have a lot of members who voted for President Trump in the last election. Um, and so getting that early jump on trying to persuade those members to support President Biden, that was the logic behind getting this endorsement out early, and they did. So let me just say, I didn't expect to turn this rant into the labor evening news, but that's sort of where we are, I guess. There's a lot going on, a huge amount going on. That's a consequence, I think, of unions being not just in the news, but being very, very important to our economy, being very, very important to worker power, being very, very important to our politics. Um, worker power matters. And that's the reason that we have this blog. It's the reason why we're doing this uh, blogcast. Um, and you're going to hear some more about worker power from John O'Malley from CWA Local 1180. Um, I think you're going to really enjoy this. And then hang around at the end. I got a couple more words for you. But here he is, John O'Malley. So, John, thanks very much for being with us on the Power at Work blog. Um, uh, the reason that we wanted to have you on, there are many reasons we wanted to have you on. Uh, we, we want to get an update from Albany, New York. We want to get uh, um, your take on a couple of issues. But uh, one of the main reasons that I was interested in having you on is that uh, your, your experience is similar to the experience of many, many union leaders and union staff across the country. And I mean that in this way. Um, a lot of trade unionists, people who become professional trade unionists, started as rank and file members, right? They are their frontline workers. They get involved with their union and then they either run for office or they end up appointed to a staff position. In fact, when it comes to running for office, they're all members, right? Almost all of them are members. A few are former staff. So so I think your story is going to be widely recognized by people in the labor movement who've experienced the same kind of things that you have. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your experience as a frontline worker at Verizon. Um, what, what made you decide while you were working at Verizon that you wanted to be involved with the union? Um, not just as a member, but doing more than just ordinary member stuff. Yeah, I appreciate that question. Um, you know, when I when I got hired into the phone company, I was 19 and my father was working at the telephone company. He also owned a little tavern and I was sort of going in no direction. You know, I was uh, I was the guy in the Prince song, uh, uh, Raspberry Beret. I was doing a little something close to nothing, but different than the day before. <laughs> and 
as I was hanging around in his tavern, he started to he started to get recruiters to show up, Air Force, Marines, all this kind of stuff. And then he finally said to me, hey, they're they're giving the test for the phone company. Why don't you try that? And so I did. And uh, I did pretty well on it. And um, they, they gave me a call and said uh, and said, why don't you come in, go to school? So so I did that. And I was 19 years old, really just taking things as they came. And I was a temp employee. And and just when I got made permanent, uh, some of the what I call the quote unquote old guys uh, rustled me up and said, we want you to be one of our shop stewards. Hmm. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what that means, but they said, go in, go in and tell the foreman, you know, he can't vi- do this. It violates the contract and blah, blah, blah. And I would go in there and the foreman would pull the contract out of his desk drawer and put it on top of the desk and say, what article have I violated? And I was like, um, I don't know. Let me hold on. And I would run back out to the old guys. Now, when I say old guys, right, they were like 41 at that time. Right. So. <laughs> So, um, so I would go back out there and say, what, how did that work before? Well, we want a grievance and then, well, what grievance? I don't know. You can go find. And, and I got this idea that if I'm going to be the guy that goes in to represent people and so I'm going to have to know, I'm going to have to have a cogent thought process and understand really what I'm talking about and how to present a case and all that sort of stuff. And so kind of from there, I, I, uh, took a, a program through Cornell ILR which was a labor studies program. I, I'm a big, I'm a, I'm a big fan, alum, former teacher, parent of an ILRE. So you're, you're taught, you're preaching to the choir right now. My, my, the guy who was coordinating the group for us was Ken Margulies, who, whom you may know. I do. Excellent. And, um, and so, um, you know, so I went through that program. I learned what the national labor relations act was. I didn't know that at the time. And, and so fr- that sort of blossomed from there. Uh, I became a steward and then I was a chief steward and then I was a business agent, executive board. I was a political director of that local. Uh, that, that local that I was in had telephone people, had college staff at Vassar and Marist. We had museums, public sector, all kinds of different stuff. And then when I left that local and came to this local, I became the legislative director. So there was a trajectory and coinciding with that was also I moved my way up through the AFL. I became a delegate and then a vice president and a president of a central labor council. And then I expanded. Wait, wait, which central labor council were you the president of? It's the, it's called the Hudson Catskill central labor council in Orange and Sullivan County. And now it is part of the Hudson Valley area labor federation, which is a four county, four or five county um, uh, federation. So let me, I, 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 I want to turn back towards Verizon just for a second, though, and I, I know that this is a, uh, I'm going to ask you about a painful episode in your life, so I want to give you the room to answer this any way that, that you're comfortable answering it, but um, because you were a shop steward and because you were an advocate for the workers there, Verizon was not in your fan club, I think it's safe to say, and they eventually forced you out. Maybe I'm overstating it, but they essentially forced you out. Tell us a little bit, if you're willing, tell us a little bit about how that happened. Yeah. So um, as a shop steward and as a chief steward, uh, I was pretty bold because I learned early on that um, they didn't, the phone company didn't really promote the brightest bulbs from the workforce when they went into management. And it wasn't that hard to really talk circles around them at a grievance table if you were determined to do that. I learned how to do things like 
you know, refusing to let grievances be advanced to the next level and instead demanding discovery. And the bosses would go to their bosses and their bosses would go to my boss in the union. And, and then I would say to them, no, let me do this. And they would say, okay, do it. And so, so I got some leeway, but I was, I was pretty bold and I was an activist and I was militant. Uh, I was surrounded by a lot of people like that from the previous generation uh, my father was a was a shop steward in the 60s and the 70s, was fired during the strike in 1971, came back after that and kind of calmed down for the rest of his uh, career. But when I was hired, it was the first um, it was the first class that happened after the 1989 strike. And I met up with a guy who was fired in the 89 strike and I and he became sort of a mentor to me as well. He was part of the Westchester County group that um, was the real militants in that area. So. So I was sort of surrounded by people that knew what to do, knew what the law said, knew what the country, and they were and they were bestowing that stuff on me. And uh, you know, I was I was young enough and immortal enough to to take that and run with it. And I did that my entire career. As I got um, further advanced, I did it less and less and tried to teach other people that more and more. Uh, but over time, you know, I was decertified by two different presidents of my union as a shop steward. And then I got reelected again in the next election. Uh, there was there was a time when I ran against the business agent that was running on the slate with the president. I ran as a lone wolf and, and I lost the first time and then I won the second time. Hmm. Um, and so that's kind of like how I used to do all kinds of stuff. And when I got into political activism, the phone company had been changing, right? We went from New York Tel to Ninex to Bell Atlantic, a regulated monopoly to an unregulated company, to now Verizon, which was really a more of an internet company. And basically Verizon was trying not to expand into various other areas. And I was working with town supervisors and mayors and different people to try to expand in those areas. So they, they were running opposite of what my activism was. And sometimes I would attend a captive audience meeting at, in the building and the, the third level uh, foreman would come out and say, well, we, we, He'd get, get the question from one of the guys, how come you're not deploying in this town? And they'd say, well, the town supervisor won't let us do it. And I would go, hold on a minute. I have an email from the town supervisor from yesterday saying he wants it and you won't let him have it. Right. So I was always doing that, always in their face, always doing that sort of stuff. So when it came to the strike in 2016, um, it was a time where we, we, we had a diminishing number of workers. We had more deregulation. I think that they were doing, I think the phone company was being successful at sort of dividing us and splitting us. They were the guys who were the runners, the guys who were the militants and certain people were getting benefits and there was favoritism and a lot of stuff. And people really didn't know what to do with that stuff. And so I tried to be an example of how to confront that as much as possible. Um, two times during the strike in 2016, I found myself in handcuffs out. We, mm. used, to, we used to do something called the flying squadrons. Right. We would have four or five guys in a car. The picket line would hold up a truck. Then they would release the truck and the car would follow the truck out to the job. If we saw a cable, a broken pole that got hit by a car and, and some of the scabs showed up to go work on that, we would show up there and we would pick it on the, on the road, like in their, in their roadway where they were. And so there were rules about that, what you could and couldn't do. We had this three page letter we used to show the cops from our attorneys about this is a labor dispute. It's not harassment, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it, it went right. one way or the other every time. Sometimes we'd get a consent decree and we would be allowed to do certain things. But there was some times in there where 
I didn't get arrested, but I did get put in cuffs and put in the car and then had a talking to and then released. And then I went right back out in front of the scabs and started yelling at him. <laughs> and so um, at the end of that strike, uh, the 2016 strike, we won the strike. And um, we were able to keep all the benefits that we had. We were able to keep a lot of the stuff in the contract that we wanted. And so on the day that we returned to, strike, to, to, the, to work, we all were outside the building and management unlocked the door, let us all in. And when we all filed in, um, at that time, we had, we had Verizon shirts. We had uniforms. We lost an NLR, a, a, a ULP and we had to wear the uniforms. So guys finally gave in and they were just wearing the uniforms to and from work also. So they'd be at a gas station on the way home. Somebody would walk up to them and go, hey, my Verizon isn't working. Can you help me? And the guy's like, I'm off, you know, give me a break. Mm. I wouldn't do that. I, I had a shirt that I would wear a shirt like this. Then I would put my shirt on, button it up when I got to work. At the end of the day, at the end of my shift, I would unbutton it again and put it on my chair and I would leave. But I was on union time, you know, three or four days a week. Uh, sometimes I was at the job once a week, sometimes once a month, sometimes twice a week. It, it all depended on whatever was going on. So I would show up to work, put my shirt on and say, what do you want me to do today? And so that day after the strike was the first day back to work. The third liner is there. He doesn't know. I never met him before. He's a new third liner. And third liner is the supervisor. Yeah, it's the third level up. So you got direct supervisor, right. second level, third level. So he says to me, well, where's your shirt? I go. I left my shirt here when we went on strike. Well, go home and get one at home. I said, I don't have any shirts at home. And he goes, well, then you'll have to go home. I go, go home to do what? Get a shirt. I go, I don't have a shirt. Like this is the conversation in front of the whole room. Of everybody, right? <laughs> and then that's crazy. Then he goes back in the other room. Then he comes back out. And now I started, now I started poking him. Right now I start pointing to him. We won the strike. We won the strike. Hey, guys, we won the strike. Right. And so people were getting all riled up and the whole room was chanting and people are crumpling up papers and throwing them and oh. all that stuff. And um, so now he gets mad at me and he comes around a table and he comes like chest to chest to me. And I, I kept my hands at my sides, you know. And um, and so then they, then he said to me, I have to leave to go out. So one of the other guys stands up and goes, if he leaves, we all leave. And they go, well, he has to leave. So everybody got up. We all mm. went out to the parking lot. Now we're out in the parking lot. And, the, and the, um, the business agent at the time, who was my successor, two business agents after me, he comes over to me and says, if I loan you a shirt, will you wear a shirt? I go, I don't care. Yeah, I'll wear a shirt. I just don't have a shirt. So he goes back in and he negotiates. They say, we'll give him a shirt. So we all go back inside. And then the third liner comes out and says to me, all of you guys can stay, but not him pointing to me even with the shirt without you got to go anyway no matter what so everybody goes back outside again leaves the mm. building now they start calling the attorneys because we had a uh, we had a return to work agreement right they, they were like let o'malley go you guys all go back to work we'll work on it we'll figure it out so i left and they all went back to work I got a mile down the road and I got a phone call from one of my coworkers saying, we're all out on the street again. Come on back. You know, so I went right back there again. So it was this kind of thing that went on and we didn't know anything about anything. We didn't know, you know, they were just sending me home. Right. So, yeah. So the next day I got up and I, and I went to work and I showed, went into the break room with everybody else. I'm standing there. The third liner is there again. His office isn't, is like two hours away. 
he's there again the second day. And he comes out of the back room. He walks up to me and goes, what are you doing here? I go, what do you mean? I work here. Not today you don't. I go, what are you talking about? He says, you got to go home. What am I going home for? He goes, you're suspended. I said, well, wait a minute. If you're going to suspend me, you have to sit me down with my steward. Tell me there's a whole procedure for that, right? I'm not doing that. You have to leave. I look at my business agent. He goes, let's go. I go, okay. So we leave. Hmm. So now don't go back to work at all, but no reason, no charges, no reason, no witnesses, no nothing, no claims, no evidence, no nothing. This goes on for like two weeks. Mm. I'm still working for the union and doing doing all that political stuff, but the company is not paying me and they consider me on suspension without charges indefinitely too. They, it wasn't mm. like a one week, a two week or whatever. After a couple of weeks of that, they bring me in for one day. They asked me like two or three questions. My president represented me. Then they sent me home again. They tried not to pay me for the time. And so then they brought me in like two days later and they notified me that I was terminated. Mm. Terminated for what? For threatening the third liner. Oh. Violence in the workplace. So now we had to figure out what to do about that. And and we filed the grievances. I mean, obviously there was no threatening, you know, that kind of stuff. And right. the scenario I gave you is pretty much what happened. I mean, there might be some little extra details here and there. Um, but you know, they got the, the guy, the guy that started the insurrection. I mean, they have to do something about that. They can't just let that go. Right. So, um, so it, I went, um, I mean, I was getting, because it was strike related, I was getting union benefits. So I got my medical and I got my, my stipend, which is a couple of hundred right. bucks. And then all the guys in the local took up a collection, which came every, every week I got like a, an envelope of money, mm. uh, for people who were just on strike yeah had no money themselves and they were all kicking in i mean you know that sort of support is something that's very difficult to to really thank people for and, yeah, you know, and yeah. they really understand how how important that is but so, it's a but, it, it is as clear an expression of solidarity with you as you possibly could have had walking out as all of this was happening multiple times that's an expression of solidarity but then supporting you financially when these folks they're not wealthy, they're working people, another expression of solidarity, powerful solidarity. For sure. And and so as you might expect, over time, those collections began to wane a little bit. Mm. And, you know, I was on an austerity budget at my house and we're trying to figure out what to pay, pay cash for certain things and all that kind of stuff. And we were doing that. But after a little while, I was like, you know, I have to find, I have to, I have to get a job while I'm waiting for this arbitration case, you know, because we, we, went through the grievance process and, you know, all along the way, I think there was, I think there was 46 people fired during that strike and um, management told my president, O'Malley's case is going last. We don't care if he wins. We don't care if we have to pay him back. Everybody else is going to go first before. Mm. Yeah. So, so, you know, that's the situation that it was. So I started looking around for work different in different ways. I was, looking for some manual, late, different kinds of uh, telephone-ish kind of stuff. Um, I also applied for various roles in different unions, the teachers union and, you know, different stuff like that, staff rep jobs and whatnot. And then I, I, I went to an interview, you know, the last time that I interviewed for a job, they would say things like, well, if you had to, 
if you had to wrap the wire on, would you wrap it on clockwise or counterclockwise? <laughs> now the new interviews are like, um, tell us about a time that you were disappointed, uh, disappointed at work and how did you overcome it? And I was like, what? <laughs> so I, I decided that I was going to have to practice those interviewing techniques. And so I, I was taking interviews every place that I could. And one of the places that I took an interview was my, was this local 1180, which um, the job that they were that they uh, that I applied for was a staff rep job, which um, I couldn't have taken because it wasn't it, it didn't pay enough at the time. But I but I thought maybe something else would come up or whatever. And sure enough, after I interviewed um, and I went through, you know, I went through my history. I mean, I knew Arthur Chiliotis, who was our American uh, right. uh, president, emeritus. A, a very famous New York, for people who are not from New York, Arthur was a very famous New York labor leader. He was one of those labor leaders that other labor leaders looked to for advice and was a just a prominent voice in the labor movement, even though his local comparatively was not that big. You know, there, there were gigantic union locals in New York City. 1180 is good size, but it's it's nothing like, say, 1199 or 32BJ with SEIU or the United Federation of Teachers. So Arthur, just on force, I think it's safe to say, tell me if you agree with this, just on force of personality, Arthur was a leader in the in the movement. For sure. And 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 a leader in in thought, not just a leader in what to do and how to do it and so forth, but also a leader in philosophy, union philosophy, helping to advance people. I mean, what 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 1180 does, I don't want to go off on a, on a tangent, but I'll just say briefly what 1180 does, the lobbying that I do at the state level for the CUNY School of Labor and urban studies, what we do at the city level and get more funding from there. And then also we have a welfare fund for education for our members that you can go and get a master's degree or more than one master's degree for free. Mm. You can, you can advance out of the union. If you want to, you can advance in the union. You can get, because the union supports that sort of thing for people. Yeah. Freedom, freedom that comes from equal opportunity. Uh, yeah is, is uh, something that is unparalleled. 1180 does a fantastic job at that. Yeah, so let me turn you, I wanna turn you to your current job at 1180 um, because you just returned from Albany or you've been in and out of Albany. I guess you're in and out all the time as, as people who lobby the legislature and the governor are. And uh, the legislative session kinda sorta has ended. I don't know if it's formally ended. I think, is the assembly still going to come back? The assembly, uh, some point, so. Yeah, the assembly will be in tomorrow and Wednesday. Right. So almost at the end of the New York State legislative session. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the labor movement's hits and misses in Albany this session. Because, as you know, people outside New York may or may not know this, but New York is what is known as a trifecta state, right? You have one party in control of the governor's office the state Senate and the state assembly, which is the state house, the house of it's the house of representatives, but we call it a state assembly uh, in New York. So you, because it's Democrats and let me just say it's, these are Democrats from New York state. And so these are not sort of blue dog Democrats that you get from other parts of the country. These, many of them are pretty progressive Democrats, some of them very progressive democratic socialists and, and others. So you would think that New York's government would be among the most pro-union in the country. So I'll just ask you an open-ended question about this. Would you say that 
1180 and the labor movement as a whole are getting what they need from New York state government, or are there some hits and misses? I think there's definitely hits and misses. I mean, I think I'm optimistic about, about what we do get. I think we do, you know, Tell us a little past, bit about some of what, tell us about what happened this session that makes you optimistic. Well, for an example, in the last four years, or, or at least during the most recent culture wars that we've had on a national level, there are some states that are moving toward more rights for workers and some states that are moving away from that. This state is one that's moving toward that, for sure, without a doubt. For an example, after the Janus decision came from the U.S. Supreme Court, in New York State, we passed some. I'm just remind everybody, but I'm sorry. I'm, I'm part of my job here is to be the labor to English translator. The Janus decision was a Supreme Court decision that essentially made all public sector unionism in the country right to work. It, you can't have um, uh, agency fee paying in the public sector. Did I get that right? That's correct. Yes. Right. And so, um, and so, some of the things that happen is there there are some outside organizations who might call up your state legislate your state government or your city government or your uh, county legislature or whatever, and they might say, "Give us give us the list of the people that work there, so we can contact them and explain to them that they can opt out of being a member of the union." Now, th this is not a union member saying that. This is not an employee of the state that's saying, this is some outside group from Indiana or California or somewhere else that's being paid a bunch of money to do this by somebody else, right? So it's a dark money scheme to try to weaken unionism. And so in some states, they let that stuff happen, right? They, they foil the list and the government gives the list and then this outside group gets to go and contact those people and try to uh, explain to them why they should leave the union. In New York state though, we passed laws that say, that any time that that happens, number one, you can't you can't give out anybody's personal information. So now, if you're a if you're a public employee, you can feel comforted by the fact that your employer will not be giving your personal information out to anybody else. And there are already laws in the state that say that they can't give out your your professional information either. Although you know, if my name if my email was jomalley at newyorkstate.com, you know, once they know the pattern. If they know people's right. names, they can try to figure it out. They can, you know, do that sort of sure. stuff. And so there's, there was a lot of talk at the time. Should we, should we try to enforce that somehow? Should we try to make it so that if anybody, anybody on the outside contacts those people, we should charge them with a crime, like a misdemeanor or something like that? You really can't do that. But instead of that, what we did is we made it so that if anybody gets a request like that, they must also notify the bargaining unit. So that means that the, the county or the town or the village or whatever has to tell CSEA or has to tell CWA or has to tell the union somebody's looking for your people's information and also that they're not allowed to give the information. So those two things together are ways in which we've really protected uh, protected our members. That's very and good. Okay. And, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish that thought. No, no, that's good. No, no. So and, and you also mentioned to me that New York State had under consideration strike benefits. I'm sorry, UI benefits for strikers. Has that, yeah. is, that was on the agenda as well this session. So, so I think you might know that New York state, the, the state Senate was in the hands of a non-labor majority since 1938, which is when right. we had the last constitutional convention in New York state. 
from 1938 to 2018, it was in the hands of the Republicans, except for one year in 1965 and maybe like an 18 month period in uh, 09 and 10 or 08 and 09, like right after the right after the um, the economy dropped in 08. But for most of that time, it was in the hands of the Republicans and we couldn't get anything done ever. And so we had things like um, everybody else, when you when you lost your job, whether you got fired whether you quit, whether you got laid off, or whether you went on strike, everybody, all those people would get unemployment benefits after waiting a one week waiting period. But if you went on strike, you had to wait seven weeks before you get unemployment. Hmm. And so there was a disparity that was there. Now, a few years ago, when the Democrats took over the Senate, and now there was there was Democrat and Democrat and Democrat, right? We got that moved down to two weeks. We tried to get it for one week, that we were in parity with everybody else. But the governor at the time, Cuomo, didn't want to give us full parity with everybody else. So he demanded an amendment. We took the two weeks and then we waited. And now he's gone and we have a new governor. And so this year we were pushing a bill in order to bring it down to one week. That bill um, did not pass the Senate and the Assembly this year. Almost. It made it to the floor and to the rules, but it didn't make it all the way. So not yet. Yeah. Uh, let me, I want to ask you a little bit about the politics of New York State. I was born and bred in Nassau County on Long Island, uh, which when I was growing up was a Republican. It was the last Republican machine really in the country. A guy named Joe Margiotta, whose name you may remember, ran the county. Uh, they ran the county government. They had all the almost all the elected officials. There were a few blue dots in the county. My hometown was was one of them. And Glen Cove, where the Swazi family, uh, was, uh, former Congressman Tom Swazi and his father and others were mayor. And there was a, an area in southern Nassau County, the five towns where you had a lot of Democrats. But as a general matter, Republicans could controlled everything in that county. And uh, and then the county, the suburbs, you know, in the New York City, as you know very, very well, New York City is as Democratic as you can be. Um, Staten Island is the exception, but the other four boroughs, very heavily Democratic. Again, there are red uh, sort of uh, isolated islands in, in Brooklyn, in Queens, but as a general matter, it's a blue city. Um, and uh, then there was sort of a trend where the, the suburbs became bluer, or at least purple. You know, Nassau County, Suffolk County, Westchester County, Rockland County, a little bit more purple. And then you had, obviously, the Western New York and the Central New York cities were also blue, and the areas around them were very red, very rural. Um, but my sense now is that New York State is sort of shifting back to where it was when I was a kid, where the suburbs are in conflict with the city and are becoming more conservative, politically conservative, more Republican, you have legislators who are, they may not be full out Trumpers, but they're pretty conservative for New York State. Um, you have that obviously in some of the more rural areas and maybe in the North country of New York, the northernmost part, north of Albany. Um, while New York City remains very, very, very blue. First of all, am I getting that right? And second of all, what has that meant for the labor agenda in Albany? Yes, I think you're getting that right. However, 
there's more detail to it than that also, because even in New York City, it's not a monolith of blueness either, right? So you have 51 city council seats, uh, but but most of them are Democratic. I mean, up until a few years ago, I think 49 or 40 or 50 of them were Democrats, but all those Democrats were different, right? They had There was like a, a whole a whole timeline of variance between some were super progressive, some were middle of the road, some were pretty conservative, but democratic. So um, even though they were all one party, they didn't all, they didn't all act in lockstep. Right. But it's definitely um, the, the city like atmosphere is expanding outside of the city. When you get into Westchester, you get into, you get into Mineola or Floral Park or places like that. It's becoming more and more like Queens, right? And it's becoming even even, you know, maybe Hempstead is 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 Queens ish to a certain extent. Right. So the atmosphere of the neighborhoods are 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 becoming almost more like part of the city. Right. When it comes to that stuff. But the people that are there really believe that there's a difference. And in some cases, in some cases, it could be because of the uh, uh, the appetite of the news that they that they read and listen to and so forth. I mean, I, I listen and read to a wide variety of different stuff. And certain news sources that I read would make me think that I would know, I would be, it was Fort Apache, the Bronx in, in all of New York City, that I should never go in there at all. Um, but if I read other types of news or even talk to my friends who live in the city, they're like, um, you know, it's not that much different than it was. I mean, there's some things you got to be careful. You can't be stupid, but of course, you know, that's a little bit different, right? So, but how does that affect the legislative process is really interesting because, as you said, um, Long Island was during the time when the Republicans had the Senate, the Republicans had almost all of Long Island. Right. right. Same thing in the Mid-Hudson where I live in Orange County. Right. So you got Orange, Rockland, Dutchess, Putnam, you know, all those counties. We had a we had a, um, a Republican blockade here. And the same thing for my town, my county, you know, had been in Republican hands for decades. And so when the Democrats took over the Senate, those two areas both changed to Democratic. Those were the primary areas which really tipped the scales. And then in the next election, I think people um, responded to that. There was some backlash, certainly in Long Island, because then, then all of a sudden some of those Democrats popped out and Republicans popped back in. Up in my area, that's happening a little bit. Some, some of the, there's a Senator up here who's a Republican, Rob Rollison. There's an assemblyman, uh, Brian Marr, who has that 101st district. It's like a snake. It starts in Orange County, goes all the way up to, you know, almost Utica. Uh, it used to be the, the Tenney district. And so, you know, you have some of those, but some of the other ones are still Democratic. James Scoofus is a senator in my area who um, is a Democrat who won his seat. His seat is a Trump plus 12, and he's a Democrat. Mm. He won that and he won that district. So. You know, it, there's there's a lot of strange, strange stuff in both the Hudson Valley and in the Long Island area that I think are trending more conservative. And I think that they're more subject to subjects like crime and bail reform and and asylum seekers and like all these kind of things. They they hear the memes and the and the bumper stickers and they bite right into it and go with it. I mean, if you stop yourself and really think about some of this stuff, um, you might you might think differently about it, but yeah. That's so what what, so what does that mean for the labor agenda in Albany? Are there 
labor Republicans. There used to be lots and lots of labor Republicans, particularly on like building trades issues. You could get a lot of Republicans to come along um, on some public employee issues. You could get Republicans to come along. Is there now uh, uh, is there a working labor coalition in the legislature that allows the state fed 1180 others who are lobbying the legislature to win on their priority agenda items. Yes, uh, the state fed does a fantastic job at at co- coalescing all of the support for labor and even ones who don't support this thing but might support the next thing, right? We have some legislators for an example who did not support the tax credit for the film industry this time around, even though that's the only tax credit that actually creates jobs and turns the economy and all that kind of stuff, but they didn't support it. But those legislators support us on other stuff. So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to that. Um, There are also many, many um, uh, labor Republicans as well. I mean, one that comes to mind is Joe DiStefano, who's out in Long Island. I mean, he's he's pretty good out there. There's there's a lot also that are pro-labor. As you said, they could be pro-labor building trade. They could be pro-labor uh, uniformed services, right? right? A lot of, a lot of uh, locals that I, I work in coalition with include corrections and sanitation and police and fire and all that kind of stuff. And these are all folks that either we have, we work in conjunction with because we all work for the city of New York or because we want to make sure that the governor doesn't take the Irma out of the, out of the, um, out of the budget, which is a, a, an extra amount of money that we get for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, it could be that we're saving our, our public pensions. It could be that we're saving retiree health care. Right. So we work together with those groups all the time and we're able to succeed by having connections to a wide swath of different legislators that are in there. The biggest problem that I think we have is that we have some progressive legislators. And and of course, in 1180, I also work with a lot of progressive groups as well. And in the progressives groups, we we tend to be the ones that they think are the are the, you know, the most conservative. Right. So I always I'm always like, you know, between those two different groups. But ultimately, you know, you have I work on things for my local is 9000 members and we are probably 85 percent women and people of color. And so we work on issues that have to do with both gender and racial equality on the job. We have EEO case, EEOC cases against New York City that we won. We've raised people's, uh, got, we've organized people in the city and also raised their wages. We've gotten them back pay for stuff. But we also work on equal pay for equal work in the state level legislature. We got, we got rid of the salary history ban question. Uh, the, the salary history question on applications. We got wage range transparency in both the city and the state level done. But sometimes what happens is we push these bills, like for an example, the, the, the equal pay for equal work bill that we got done at the state level, we made it all the way through the legislature, all the way through the committees, passed all of the attorneys and the staff people, passed the committee leaders, passed the leadership it passed both houses, got to the governor, and the governor asked for an amendment because one of our public sector unions said, we don't want to take that thing that's one of the mandatory subjects of bargaining that we control. We mm-hmm. don't want to take it out of that and put it into prohibited subjects of bargaining by putting it in the legislature. It's a great idea. It's a great topic. All the people that don't have a union should have that. But for the people that do have a union, we want to carve out. Mm. And so I, I worked on that one particular bill for like two years 
to get all of the people in New York State who don't have a union to get that benefit. Mm. But not so your own members. Your own members not, don't have that. My own members have it based on contract negotiation. The contract, yeah. That's really fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. Let me, um, I, I failed to give you an opportunity to tell us who Local 1180 represents. And I think some of our viewers, particularly those who are, and listeners, because we have viewers and listeners here at the Power at Work blog, um, they're going to be a little surprised by the group of folks that you represent, because if they're familiar with private sector labor law, well, there are no unions for these kinds of folks in the private sector. Tell us a little bit about let, let's in the public sector, who does 1180 represent? So in the in the public sector, we represent people in all of the mayoral services in New York City that are white collar professionals, right? So in the civil service, if you work for motor vehicle or if you work for finance, maybe you're, a, a, you know, you work with the money somehow, maybe you work in child services, HPD, any of these, uh, maybe even at the borough president's office or the mayor's office, we have civilians that work at NYPD, civilians that work at FDNY. After you get, you know, four or five promotions in the civil service, then you come to us, right? So mm. we are administrators, we're supervisors. Sometimes we supervise those people that do the work that we used to do. Sometimes we don't supervise anybody. We're coordinating managers, we're um, PAAs, and then there's levels, right? In our titles, there's PAA1, PAA2, PAA3. So- right. um, so that's in the city service, and then also the same type of worker at health and hospitals. That includes all of the actual hospitals in the public hospital system. It also includes the nursing homes, the, some of the home care people. We have corrections health that are health care workers that work on Rikers Island. We also have people that work in the central office for, for H&H. And then separately, we have a private sector uh, group that we've been organizing uh, over the years. And we have a really fantastic organizer named Leslie Fine, who does a really, really great job. But we represent people that do similar type, type of work. Sometimes they're staff attorneys. Sometimes they're, um, uh, we had people that were veterinarians. We have people that uh, do all kinds of things like that. So uh, for an example, we represent people at Amnesty International, Human rights first. Right. So they're not I want to ask you about the not-for-profit workers first. I just want to make one point about these, about the public sector workers you represent. And this is the point that I was that I was sort of hinting at is supervisors in the private sector don't have the right to organize, right? They're excluded from the definition of they are employees, but they're not covered by the National Labor Relations Act. There's an explicit exception for supervisors in the statute. And so if you were to look at the private sector analogs to the people you represent, you couldn't represent them, right, in the public sector. And what, what is fascinating is 1180 is not some new, you know, surprise, came out of the blue, you know, 15-minute old organization. 1180 has been around for a very long time, and you've successfully represented supervisors with no damage to their employers, <laughs> At all, right? You, I mean, the, the argument against supervisors having unions is, well, they're supposed to be the voice of management and they, they can't, they shouldn't have split loyalties. Well, you know, for those of us who are sort of dyed in the wool trade union supporters and trade unionists, we don't think that being a union member makes you disloyal to the employer. It doesn't mean that you have split loyalties. Being a trade unionist can mean being loyal to your employer and wanting your employer to succeed because the workers succeeding is how the employer succeeds. So, it's just a fascinating 
uh, sort of experiment in supervisor unionism, and and not the only one in New York State, right? The, the school supervisors, the principals, lots and lots of supervisors in New York State in the public sector are represented by unions. Go ahead. Well, some of, some of those, like the principals, is a principals association. Ah, I see. So it's like more like have, a trade association. Right, right, right. But you do have um, you do have um, the sergeants, which are different than the patrolmen. You do have the uh, the fire the lieutenants that are different than the uh, than the firefighters, right? And so there there are rules in the public sector that some levels of supervision can be unionized, but in some cases they can't be the same union, because right. then you might go to the union meeting and make a bylaw change and say no union member can discipline another one, and then then what do you do? You know, right? Exactly um, right. So that's so that's one thing. But I did have a group. Uh, in my last local that worked at a school system and we had cafeteria workers and custodial and maintenance guys. And there were titles that were in there like uh, custodial worker and then custodian and then head custodian. They were all in our union. Management would tell them all the time. And sometimes they would tell me, well, I'm his supervisor. And I'd go, you're not his supervisor. You're like the lead man. Like, like if you're, if you have to make up the schedule and then if you mark that guy tardy, you're not the one that's disciplining him. Mm. The supervisor is disciplining him. You're just giving witness testimony to the supervisor. So the right. supervisor can, you know, so they, but they always tried to, um, they always tried to elevate the people's pride by saying, you're the boss, you should do this, even though they were giving them like 50 cents an hour more. Right? Yeah. So you see that in the, in the fight over, the federal overtime regulations, you hear that same argument being made. Oh, these people want to be treated as professionals. They want to be treated as uh, as a, as uh, uh, executives. They don't want to be treated as an ordinary worker. Well, they, they'd like to make overtime, right? They'd like to get the pay yeah. for the extra time they're putting in, not work 60 hours a week for a fixed salary. So, okay, I want to, I'm, I'm very, I'm desperate to get to the topic you just raised and I cut you off and shame on me. And I'm going to go to broadcast prison, I guess, for doing that. But I want to, I want you to talk about not-for-profit employees, employees of not-for-profit organizations, because 1180 represents those. First of all, how did 1180 get into the business of representing workers at Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch? Well, I don't know about those two in particular, but I'll tell you that generally, generally that, that category of folks. Here's the problem that that because of our austerity budgets and because of the fact that public services have been moving toward privatization, full privatization or partial privatization. You have a lot of politicians out there talking about public private partnerships or design build and all this kind of stuff. And they're falling for the idea that you know, the public sector can do it more efficiently or better or whatever, which usually just means sometimes it means it's because the private sector doesn't have a union and the public sector does. And so, you know, that was part of the impetus for us to look at some folks that were doing public work and say, well, we can represent the people we're representing. We can represent them, too. And so there, there was a movement to begin to organize them. This is before, you know, the Starbucks and Amazon and, you know, the, the most recent wave of stuff. This is pre-2016. We already represented uh, some of those folks. And some of those folks are not New York City centric. 
right? I mean, all of them have a headquarters in New York City, but for Amnesty, we have people in DC, we have people in LA, we have people in Chicago. Mm. We have, you know, some of them are like the, the Mideast policy chief of Amnesty International was on our bargaining team. He was a shop steward of ours, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. So these are, these are not frontline workers in the sense of frontline workers, you know, um, private sector. They're definitely uh, at the cream of the crop when it comes to their work and what they do. And the same thing with Human Rights First and Human Rights Watch. I mean, sometimes sometimes we would be in a bargaining meeting or we'd have a bargaining meeting tomorrow. And one of the people on the bargaining committee that was going to make the wage um, the wage presentation to management would email us and say, sorry, I have to fly down to the border because I have to represent somebody who's seeking asylum tomorrow. Mm, yeah, and that's what we have to do. So let yeah. me let me ask you about the workers. I want I want to ask you about the workers. I also want to ask you about the employers. So my uninformed outsiders guess is that these are workers who are going to be inclined to be pro-union, right? People who have as a career dedicated themselves to a humanist or humanitarian mission generally are going to be a little more communitarian in the way they view the world, definitely are going to be more focused on making people's lives better, just very generally speaking. I know I'm speaking in very broad generalities, which would maybe make them a little bit more open, not maybe, I think most definitely make them more open to organizing a union. Do I have that right? Am I caricaturing them a little bit too much? I think you're caricaturing them correctly, but I think the answer, do you have it right, is both a yes and a no, because it's a yes, it, it, it's a no first, because these are people who oftentimes believe in the mission, right? They could be people that are fresh out of school, that are going to do this for a little while and then move on to something else or whatever. And so they're doing it because of the real mission of this particular nonprofit, whatever it might be. Um, although what happens is when you get to the bargaining table and management says, we can't raise the wages because after all, this is just a, 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 a step up job. You know, it's the kind of job where, where most of the people are living at home with their parents and we're not going to raise the wages so they can get ahead because that's the kind of person we want. We want a person who will only stay here a couple of years and move on to something else. Right. Once, once our bargaining members hear that and they go, thank goodness I got a union. Because otherwise they'd be putting up with that with that process. So yes, I think it's true. They are definitely believers in the philosophy. They value the reputation, not the profit so much. And I think a lot of times management does as well. But then eventually you end up with some sort of an employee-employer conflict. And then all of a sudden people are on one side of the fence or the other. Yeah, so tell us about the employers. Because again, you know... Uh, I think there is a perception that the organizations that you listed are not progressive in the sense of politically progressive. They're not they're not sort of partisan political organizations. They are advocacy service providing organizations. And, you know, there's this sense that they are liberal in the small L sense of the word, right? That they're they have a, a humanistic view of the world. And, you know, one piece of that one would hope is that they would look at their employees and say, oh, well, we want to improve the lives of our employees like we're improving the lives of the people that we're serving. Is that anywhere close to accurate? Yeah, I think so. But I mean, 
think about this. We have the ones that I mentioned. We also represent the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Right. StoryCorps. Edible Schoolyard, which is a group of people who teach kids in New York City how to grow gardens and then cook from the gardens. Mm. Open Society Foundation, the Sunrise Movement, right? These are all, those are certainly liberal um, think tanks to a certain extent. And we represent the workers who work for them, right? So same thing with the Audubon Society. We actually changed the name of our union from the Audubon Society to the Bird Union because of John Audubon's uh, history of, of slave owning. And, you know, there's various other ones, too. The Physicians for Human Rights is another group that we have. So all of these, I mean, there's a, a bunch more that are on the list. But what I'm saying is these are definitely people who when you go to work for this place, you have you have a philosophy in mind. You have a mission. There's something you're trying to accomplish or there's good work that you're trying to do. And that's usually in concert with management. But then at some point, people say, how can I be an attorney living in New York City, getting paid $45,000 a year. And when I ask for more, they say, they say no, or they say, oh, we'll see what we can do. And then we just heard that Marsha just got more than 45,000 and we're not really sure. And, and then you finally realize that a boss is a boss is a boss is a boss. Hmm. And, and it, and it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really make much difference what the business is that they actually do. Um, we know, for an example, with hospitals, that um, a nonprofit hospital is not a not profit making hospital. It's one that makes profits and keeps the profits. It still doesn't pay it to the workers. right? So um, some of these nonprofits are that way, but some of them are not. Some are in dire straits. I mean, we have we have one um, right now that's in, in terrible shape. Uh, we we knew that they were in trouble. We bargained a short extension with them that included a no layoff clause. And before that short extension is over, they're already talking about how can we do a layoff and how, what are we going to do? We lost some funding and we don't know, you know, it's a very unsure way to live, not just for us, but for them. So how they deal with that and how they operate under those uh, circumstances and how they treat us is the most important point. As you know, anybody in this world would take a job for less money if they got treated with dignity. That's, that's the basic fact. So if they came, if they come to us and say, yeah, we're not going to lay you off. And then they pull the rug out from under us, people's hair is going to be on fire. On the other hand, if they come out and say, we're really having a hard time, let me open the books. Let me show you what's going on and blah, blah, blah. What do you think we should do about this? People would be willing to tighten the belt if that happens. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's that is the difference between a mature bargaining relationship and a, a more challenged bargaining relationship is that mature bargaining partners see each other as partners, right? They see the union and the workers as as contributors to important decision making in the workplace. And you've experienced that throughout your career, I'm sure. I know I've experienced it in a number of the places that a uh, number of the outside places where I've been involved. And when I was in the labor movement, I saw it uh, quite closely. Um, and it's particularly true in industries where people are struggling, where the industry is struggling. Um, they need the help of everybody and they need all hands on deck and uh, their, their employees are a very important part of that. Now, if the employees get a sense that they're getting screwed, then they're not going to have any part of that. They're not going to contribute to their own, uh, you know, exploitation, but they they definitely want the organization to succeed. They joined the organization so that it would succeed, so they could contribute to the success. That's been my experience for sure. 
John, the, he, oh, I'm sorry, things, last word, because I, I don't want to keep you too long. Go ahead. One other thing I'll mention is I had a, I had a museum in my last local that was uh, had no union at all for a while. It was the same kind of thing. It was a nonprofit. People did it for the purpose and all that kind of stuff. And then they had a problem and they they organized into an association. They they negotiated a contract on their own. They enforced that contract. And then all of a sudden, the nonprofit had a pro bono attorney who was on the board who said, you can't, we're not going to, we have no reason to bargain with you because you're not under the National Labor Relations Act. You're just an association or whatever. And they were like, what? And then they realized that they started shopping around for unions and they, they interviewed us, the Teamsters, various other people. And then eventually they got us, which then brought them the resources that they needed. These two people who were the president and vice president who became a steward and chief steward for us eventually got fired unjustly. And mm. then we were able to save their job down the road by going to arbitration for them, where one day of arbitration, just the staff people we had in the room was more money that we brought in in all dues for the whole unit for the whole year. But yeah. the principle was one that they would have never been able to do without having a real union. And I say that because in this atmosphere today, we're organizing part of the nonprofits. There's other people that are organizing independent unions and those independent unions are in a different a different place than we are. They don't have those resources. Sometimes they have help, but they don't have the deep resources like you would if you organize with uh, with a union that's organizing in that area. So I, I just wanted to mention that because I think that that sort of is forward looking from this conversation um, toward the toward the really the current organizing schemes that are going on, really unorganized organizing that's really happening all over the place, which is really, really great to see. Uh, maybe we'll see another resurgence like we had in the 30s and the 60s, and now we'll see it now, you know? That's a great place to end our conversation. An optimistic note. John, thanks a lot for taking the time. Thank you, Seth. Hey, thanks for sticking around. How about that story from John O'Malley about that retaliation that he suffered uh, at the hands of his employer after a successful strike by his union? Uh, the good news for him is that it turned out well, but, uh, you know, that's a story, sadly, that's being uh, repeated across the United States, even today, uh, workers being fired uh, because of their union activity um, and their unions fighting to get them reinstated and get them their back pay. Hey, stay connected with us uh, here at the Power at Work blog. Uh, go to Twitter and follow us at, at Power at Work uh, blog. I'm sorry, let me do that again. On Twitter, at Power at Work blog. On Instagram, at Power at Work blog. LinkedIn, the Power at Work page. Just search Power at Work and you will find us. Connect with us. Give us comments. Give us suggestions for these blogcasts. Go to the website and subscribe. Subscribe to the Power at Work blog and you'll get two things out of that. One is we'll keep you updated on the new information, new materials that we post to the blog. We've got lots of great material on the blog Right now, my analysis of a new NLRB decision that I talked about in the introduction, my analysis of the UPS strike, six things about the six observations about the UPS and uh, Teamsters negotiations that you should know about, my remembrance of my friend Bill Spriggs, uh, other blogcasts that you should be paying attention to and enjoying. They're terrific. Uh, one with um, uh, uh, state secretaries of labor, another with my co-author is on a labor law casebook. We talked about the Glacier Northwest versus Teamsters uh, uh, Supreme Court decision. So 
subscribe. So you'll get that. We'll keep you updated, but you'll also get the weekly download. The weekly download is a collection of a couple of dozen stories, studies, articles, think pieces, videos, other stuff from around the web, the World Wide Web, about workers, worker power, and unions. And we will send that to you in your inbox once a week at the end of the week. Uh, if you miss it, if you're not subscribing, go to the blog and you can see it there. But why not just let us send it to you and that way you can stay updated. So thanks a lot for your support of the Power at Work blog. Thanks a lot for watching this broadcast. We will see you on the blog again very soon.